Hello, and welcome to the next Cove Julius episode of Slate Money Succession. We are back, people. Succession is back. Succession Season 3 is coming next week on HBO. And of course, I, Felix Salmon of Axios, will be watching every episode, as will be Emily Peck of Fundrise. Hello. I'm so excited. I can't wait. We are going to be watching episode every episode. We're going to be talking about it right here on Slate Money. And to set the scene, we have the most insightful succession observer that I think probably exists outside the walls of the succession writing room itself. Rebecca Mead from The New Yorker, welcome. Thank you. Delighted to be here. You wrote a fantastic piece about Jesse Armstrong and calling him the real CEO of Succession. He he runs this show. He runs a really tight ship, controls more or less everything about the show. This is normal in television, by the way. The showrunner does this on shows. But you had some amazing insights. So we're going to talk to you about season one, season two. And although none of us have actually seen any of the episodes, season three of the best show on TV, all coming up on Slate Money Succession. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Rebecca, there has been, I believe the technical term is a fuck ton written about succession in every single publication that I subscribe to. But you win the prize for the best succession article. It's amazing in the New Yorker. So we needed to have you on to kick off this season of Slate Money Succession. I know nothing about season three. I, I have no idea what to expect. I haven't seen a single episode. Neither has Emily. But... What we wanted to talk to you about is just like where we're at right now after the first two seasons. And I think the place I would love to start, because the thing that really you changed my mind about with this show is that I went into it with season one thinking this is a kind of satire of media moguls. And we had like Ed Leon from the New York Times and all of these people talking about, you know, how much is it Rupert? How much is it Sumner? How much is it Barry Diller? You know, and trying to sort of work out what the subtweets were. And then after reading your article, I started thinking, well, maybe it's not actually a media show at all. It's actually a, a rich people show. It's much more about wealth than it is about media. Mm, yeah. It's funny, isn't it? You, I mean, because because you might think of it as also as a business show or yeah, a finance show. Um, but I, I mean, for me, what was fascinating about writing about it was the way in which the writers and Jesse and and his team do this, you know, meticulous research into the world, and it's not just you know made up, but it's all the interviewing of consultants to to very rich people or you know the sort of digging into this kind of background detail and you know which is very much like the kind of thing that a reporter does um so there was 
sort of a, an admiration for the verisimilitude of it. But yeah, I, yeah, you know, the kind of oblivious rich people element of it is one of the things that I particularly like about it, I must say. You had this great example, um, speaking of the speaking of the details, a great example on the, the last episode of season two, the Roys were on this yacht. And you talk about in your piece, the research that went into showing them on this yacht, like finding out that rich people get their morning papers printed out off the internet every day for them, or <laughs> um, certain things wiped down. I forgot what was wiped down. But yeah, makeup, the makeup compact. Yeah, you know, your powder contest. compact is wiped down for you. I mean, I suppose one thing about being on the yacht is that you're probably, you know, having to do your own makeup, which maybe a lot of the time you're not doing if you're one of the Roy's. But um, yeah, I, I mean, that's the kind of thing that, you know, you know, as a reporter, I love to discover in stories that I'm doing if I'm writing about oblivious rich people myself. So to see the ways in which they sort of found those things. And, you know, you don't, I guess, you know, I didn't rewatch it to see whether the makeup compact had been perfectly wiped clean, but I'm sure it had, you know. But you do get those wonderful lines like, sails out, nails out, <laughs> <laughs> which is definitely one of the lines that has stuck with me the most from both seasons. You're like, yeah, that's, that's such a rich person thing to say. But don't you think also that, I mean, I, you know, one wonders to what extent those, those kinds of terms are invented by the succession writers and now have entered into like the, the parlance of the yachting community. <laughs> the, you know, do, is that now what David Geffen says when he invites you onto his yacht? I bet it is. You know, there was a thing that, uh, this was in the piece that I wrote, but there's an expression that, Jesse Armstrong uses, apparently, I have not actually heard him say this, but in the writer's room, he uses this expression that, you know, a character, let's Tom say, has shit his whack. Oh my God, Tom has completely shit his whack. And one of the writers told me about this expression and said that, you know, he assumed that this was a Britishism and that People like you and me, Felix, say this all the time, and no, we don't. Um, we do not. I can, for don't. the record, I can confirm I have never heard this expression. <laughs> but, but you know what? We will, because I think that, you know, last I heard it was being introduced into one of the episodes uh, in this forthcoming season. And, you know, I hope very much that it will become a thing that people start to say and use. I mean, it's it's wonderful to enrich the language, right? And to do it with these kinds of, you know, flamboyant and Baroque um, linguistic inventiveness of this show. Well, um, Felix sent me, I, I don't know if you saw, there was some piece about Rupert Murdoch's own birthday party recently where they did some kind of succession-inspired song or rap or something. Elizabeth Murdoch, <laughs> like, put together a video for him just like, you know, oh, at Jesus. the birthday party in Dundee, and it had the succession theme tune. Oh, that's perfect. That is too, another... too, too, too perfect. And all all of the kids did their little video, happy birthday grandpa things, except James, who was NFI. Aha. Great. But was, and was it all recorded and has it all been leaked or do we only know this by, you know? So far, so far it has not been leaked, but oh my God, do we, do we want not. to see that video? We do. We do. <laughs> The one thing I was going to add is that you see rich people now inspired by succession or like, because they think it's maybe a, like an amusing good thing. And we see this over and over again with depictions 
of wealth in movies, even when they're not fetishizing wealth, as you point out, Succession does not fetishize how rich these people are. It still it still happens anyway, <laughs> right? The Murdochs are still doing a Succession parody. At the yeah, moment. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, you know, in the same way that you one assumes the royal family watches The Crown, right? Maybe not the Queen, but the rest of the the younger ones definitely, right? So <laughs> definitely. they they must do so. So you have to assume that the that you know the Murdochs and all their their peers are are watching this and you know trying to see whether people whether they got it right. You know, I mean, if 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 it were your your world, my world uh, that were being depicted, I would want to know if they got you know the right kind of coffee cup or the you know the right Marks and Spencers, you know, ready ripened nectarines in the packet on the counter or whatever it is that is my defining tell me how much because there is this tension right on the one hand they do do an enormous amount of research in terms of trying to get things right on the other hand it is ludicrously satirical and a bunch of you know no one actually goes around saying things like bolus of gubbins right i mean it's like <laughs> you don't actually have the weird kind of affair that you're seeing between Jerry and Roman, like that a lot of it is exaggerated for comedic effect. And it is a very funny show. And so like, how do you like mentally square that kind of the, the, the balance is trying to balance between verisimilitude and, and just satire? Well, I don't know. I don't, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think, don't we have relationships like, you know, Jerry and Roman? I mean, you know, oh, I, I mean, I, not, not myself, I personally, but <laughs> I can, you know, one can imagine it's not, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility, is it? I, I mean, I think, yes, it's all, it's all pushed maybe to an extreme, but, you know, and I think of it very much like, you know, the Victorian novel is how is sort of the frame that I come, I bring to succession. And it's not, and I wrote a book, book about George Eliot, and this is not, it's, it's more satirical than George Eliot's, but it's not like a million miles from, you know, a satirical English literature trollop. Right. I mean, like Tristan Shandy or something like that went much further. Yeah. I don't think that, that you have to think that, you know, something is either true or satirical. Um, so, I mean, I think so I th is, it, is I, it English? I mean, I, you go, you're go, you're English. You're going straight to these English novelists. The showrunner is English. There is like, how English do you think the show is? I mean, I think it is rooted in something very English. I mean, it's it's written by a writers' room of half Americans, half English, British people. So it's not like it's a totally you know, auto-driven, only British writer type thing. And, you know, everybody's international now. So, you know, you it's like, it's not that hard to be au fait with things in New York if you're a certain kind of level of, you know, British person in the TV. But I think that the, the thing that's crucially English about it is the absolute swerve from sentimentality. That, that it is so resolutely unsentimental and it does not allow even like a, an inch, a glimmer of, you know, kind of 
Oh, it's a, redemption. You know, it's rede- there's none of that. It's you know, it's it, and it's all just uh, nobody can say what they think. Nobody can say what they feel. You know, the, I mean that incredible scene in, at the end of the the uh, the finale of the of season two, where on the, they're on the yacht and there's the joking about talking but about their feelings and their funny little voices. This, is there a thing where we like talk to each other about stuff? Normally, you want to talk to each other normally? Okay. <laughs> you mean talk about okay. the big shit? Yeah, mm. we can talk about the big shit. We can talk about our talk feelings. About... <laughs> How am I the mature one here? We don't have any feelings. What are you talking that about? Part of the characters, although the, you know the ma- the children all present as American, but I think that deep down their cold English mother and their brutalizing Scottish father, uh, you know, are very influential on on who they who they are and what what makes them what they are. Um, and I think the fact that the show you know originates with a British writer and is written in this country that I'm sitting in right now in in Britain and you know and has a, a significant number of British writers writing it is part of what gives it that tone of that's kind of acid bile unforgiving relentless devoid of sentimentality you also had this line speaking of this is a show about about wealth you had this line in your piece that was like there's nothing in life quite so interesting as being at court um, yeah that was something and- that Jesse said yeah and that strike struck me as like exactly what what is happening when I'm watching Succession. It's like it's like reading one of these of these novels about <clears throat> the English aristocracy or something, where everything's happening and they're all kind of like trapped in I don't know the castle together or on a yacht together or at some like dinner together, and it's all like the palace intrigue is just intense. There are so many machinations going on and 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 subtext, and it, it's just it struck me as sort of like the same. exactly what is going on with this show you know it's like being at court yeah 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 I mean and I don't think we really think that a family like the Roy's spends quite as much time in each other's pockets as they do I mean they you know they're constantly uh there's a there's an occasion for them all to be over at Logan's house or you know all being called out to the country together and I I mean maybe the Murdochs will do that as much as that but i i doubt it but it is a it, you know but but we buy into that don't we that that that's the kind of thing that i think you know we you have to buy into as a kind of artistic license but the kind of baroque cruelty and satiricism if that's the word of it i don't i don't uh that isn't that's just like normal life isn't that and the oh the other thing i worried about <clears throat> if you're like a very if you're if your dad's super rich and owns this big multi-billion dollar company and you want to work there you can never do the thing that all children do which is separate from your parents just literally just separate from your parents like i have a teenager now and he is in the process of like pushing away like making a whole establishing mm. an identity separate from the family mm-hmm. which is key to becoming an adult but if you are <laughs> if your father holds the keys to all the money and your future your career everything you can never do that separation and that is like one of the big tensions of this show like you can't just be a person you're always an adult child like how they used to call they always call trump's kids 
children, his his child, da da da. And you're like, these are grownups. But like, actually, if you think about it, no, they're not quite grownups. They've never done the separating. They can't separate because the money. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then there's, you know, I mean, one gets the sense that Connor has, who's had longer to separate than anybody else and has, you know, maybe done it somewhat effectively, but is still being drawn back and, you know, and still wants the money, um, still asking for the handouts. I mean, there's something sort of great about knowing that everybody's kids ask them for money. It's not just us, you know, it's it's also the, them. Those poor privileged people who don't have the, the opportunity to become self-made, it's a, it's a tragedy. As you explain, this this grew out of Murdoch sort of piece. Equally, obviously, as the show progressed and was being written, Trump took over the, the national consciousness. How much do you think it became about Trump and the Trump kids? There are definitely a lot of very salient echoes here and there. How, how much was that sort of consciously something they started to include in the show? I think that it was, uh, Frank Rich said to me while I was talking to him that when they were filming the pilot, which was just after the election in 2016, and they were filming in the Council on Foreign Relations building, which has now been copied to become Logan Roy's apartment. But at the time, for the pilot, they were in the actual building and, and watching the kids. And Frank said, if I'm remembering correctly, that I, did, I don't think this made it into the piece, but sort of, you know, I felt like I was watching or, you know, we're watching the Trump kids in relation to their father. But I don't, I don't feel that as a, you know, I, didn't, I don't think they needed to hit that too hard. I mean, I think these, this family exists in its own world. And of course, it's constantly influenced by the news and what's going on. But it's much more thematically, it's much more about news events that you might have read on the, in the Financial Times about this, you know, this financial takeover or this attempt to buy this company or whatever than it is, uh, let's look closely at the dynamic or replicate the dynamic with the Trumps. I mean, the Trump, the Trump kids in some ways are less, much less interesting and I also feel like the Trump kids weren't, we didn't follow those brothers quite as closely as we follow the Roys. I mean, in some way, we, Ivanka we followed quite a bit, but the but the other two kind of like faded a little bit from view. Maybe, maybe they should have not faded quite so much. I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, obviously, I think that, that the, the fact that this, the show happened at the same time as, the, as Trump was elected was good for the show in the sense that there was a a kind of there's a sort of rapaciousness to to the Roy's that felt no longer like you know well this is a this is a really ugly world I'm glad I don't live in this world to you know Jesus you know I, I live in a really hideous terrifying world and here's a kind of you know amusing dramatization of it that I can uh watch to try to distract myself or from distract myself from reading the news and just, you know, <laughs> laugh instead of crying. It does make me wonder how the show is going to hit <clears throat> in this upcoming season, given what you were just saying. I'm thinking about the state of TV now, I guess, you know, where everyone's talking about the show Ted Lasso and how everyone's so nice on it and isn't that great and it's just what we need in these times. How is Succession 
going to hit at a time when people just theoretically want to watch, you know, nice people doing nice things. This is the exact <laughs> opposite of that. And I know from reading your piece, I have gleaned some some hints about the next season. One is they're not going to deal with the pandemic at all. They're just going to pretend no pandemic, no masking, no none of that topicality. So I am I'm curious about that. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that decision is you know, I mean, I, th- I think they have a sense that they're making a show that will last, you know, and that people will go back to and it and and it would be weird, I think, to tell this story and then have a, you know, hopefully the pandemic will be a thing of the past at some point in our, in our short-term future or even just in our long-term lives. But, you know, I, I mean, I think as a creative person, you would want to have the show to have an integrity that, uh, was the integrity that you imagined when you began it in some ways. So while there's a lot of reaction to topicality, I think that Jesse made that decision to not address it. Also, you don't know where you're going to where you're going to come in on it, do you? You don't know where where the pandemic's going to be by the time you start filming, and it doesn't doesn't air for a year for another year. You know, how do you know what note to hit? So maybe don't hit the note at all. I, I mean, I think we'll all buy into that. I think we'll all buy into a an alternate world that in which there was no pandemic. I think that might be quite nice to watch. I mean, maybe it's going to be, you know, not just like, oh, we want to watch nice people, but, oh, look, a world in which nobody's wearing masks and nobody's, you know, and no one has, no one's shouting at anybody for not wearing masks and nobody's, <laughs> di- you know, defiantly uh, wearing theirs or not wearing theirs or whatever, you know, that it's not a non-issue. Do, do, you, think, do you think the Roy... The Roy's TV networks would air all of the anti-vaxxers. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, one of my favorite things in the last two seasons has been looking for what they put on the ticker in the um, in the credits, you know. And that's going to be fun to see what the what the um, you know last time it was what elite was it transgender illegals entering the country transgender illegals all of i'm saying this in quotes please um all of you know entering the country double quotes twice um so so um yeah there's a room there for a, a sort of mischievous topicality we'll have to see Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card you earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I I got people fractured me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. 
on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. One question I have for you is the sort of metadramatic decision to introduce essential characters Tom and Greg, who didn't grow up with all of the money and don't actually have a lot of money, and even though they're deeply unsympathetic characters, both of them, they can act as our sort of eyes into, oh my God, look at the crazy lifestyles of the born rich, because the kids and Logan, like... They're so rich, they don't even notice it. They're like, it's just part of who they are. And so you need someone in there to kind of notice it. Mm, Yeah, like when Tom takes Greg to dinner and says, I'm going to teach you how to be rich. And they they eat the ortolan with the cloth over their head so they don't show their own shame. What what now? Ortolan. What's ortolan? It is a deep-fried songbird. Eat it whole. Oh my god. This is like a rare privilege, and it's also kind of illegal. Oh, I have it for the head. The exact purpose is debated. Some say it's to mask the shame, others to heighten the pleasure. The thing about you know those characters is that they they don't give us the sort of vantage point of you know the innocent abroad with whom we can sympathize. I mean, they'd love to be as rich and rapacious as the the Roy's, wouldn't they? And and they're or they're trying oh, as they're trying their hardest. Them. Yeah, I mean, you know, Tom, poor Tom. I mean, I do feel, I feel tremendous, I do feel tremendous sympathy for them all, though, don't you? I mean, you know, this this narrative that, it, I mean, it was especially, I think, in season one of like, oh, they're all such terrible people and I can't stop watching them. I mean, I don't think of it like that. I think of their, you know, that they're these complex people who are often, you know, don't know what they think about themselves, don't know what they feel about themselves, can't access their own feelings, can't communicate with one another, you know, have an idea that the world might be different, but don't know how to make it different. And, you know, it's much more comfortable and easier to be just cruel and greedy. Um, but that that's not always all that they want to be. I mean, I feel that with Shiv, especially that her character is you know, you sometimes see this, but not, no, certainly not just with her, but you, but she's been given a couple of places where she talks about the, the trap that she is in, in some sense, like when she tells Tom that she wants an open marriage. I just think, you know, I was in such a total mess when, when we hooked up, when I needed you so much. It was in a very bad way. And we've got the business angle that works. We're good on that. We, we have a plan. Uh-huh. But in terms of the relationship, I'm just 
wondering if there's an opportunity for something different from the whole box set death march. The box set death march? Yeah. You know, just a different shape of relationship. It could be exciting. Right. Maybe, I guess, yeah. It's exciting. It's exciting. Yeah, you know, because we've torn everything else down, right? Love is the last fridge magnet left. Right. How do you mean? Well, I mean that love is, is, is just like 28 different things, and they all get lumped in together in this one sack, and there's a lot of things in that sack. It needs to get emptied out. There's fear and jealousy and revenge, control, and... They all get wrapped up in really nice fucking wrapping paper. And it just looks really lovely and nice, but when you open it up... No, no, you're right. It is. It's love. It's bullshit. Yes. But I, I do love you. I love you too. Fuck. Sometimes Fuck. there's, this, there's the mo- these moments when the kind of acid barbs are dropped for a moment and a character gets to talk for a moment about something that's a glimmer towards more like what they might feel if they allowed themselves to feel. Yeah, and in rewatching it, I did feel more empathy for all of them, especially because they have such a bad dad. I mean, God. But, but not Logan, or including Logan. Uh, oh, you know what? Logan is maybe the one I don't feel that much sympathy for. I mean, there's a scene early on where they show his back and it has marks like he's been, he's been hit with a strap and you're kind of like, oh, damn. That's why. But I don't feel as much empathy for him. He is so cruel to his children. It's it's really, it's almost, com- it's comical, of course, but it did cause me to feel empathy for the children themselves, who are adults, as I said earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but there's somebody's, everybody's always someone's child. Just like how he plays with Kendall and seems to, I think Kendall's girlfriend in the season finale is like your father likes you when you're hurt or something like that, you know, because Logan like pushes her out off the yacht and it, it seems like just to punish his son, like it doesn't seem to be for any particular reason. Um, and he's constantly like undercutting them, calling them idiots and stupid. And I don't know, just that's the last person you want to hear that from. I mean, there is the reason though that they're having a family conference about what to do with their company and she is the scion of another rival media company so that you know that is sort of a reason and maybe Kendall was a bit reckless in bringing her without asking for permission but you can see why he wanted to too I'm dying to know what happens I just watched that last episode so (laughs) (laughs) what what's like the 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 indelible moment for you from the first two seasons what's the line that sticks with you or the scene that sticks with you Oh, I don't know. I mean, there are so, 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 so many. I mean, I do think, you know, I mean, in terms of oblivious rich people, that the the next Cove Julius is such a, you know, <laughs> and that and there are in an infinity of coves and we will go to the next one until we get the next one and the one after that and the one after that. And the you know, that, what I love about that too is that it's Tom who is play acting in some way the role of the rich person um you know he's inhabiting this newly found identity and it's uh yeah so that one that one stays with me i don't know there are so many i mean it's just it's just too uh yeah it's too delicious i mean it i i haven't 
watched the whole thing again in the last couple of weeks but um <laughs> i sort of want to again before we before we start the next one i'm gonna try and squeeze well, how many episodes is it between seasons ten. one and two there's there's only 10 episodes in season two and i can remind listeners of what happens at the end of season two if you want okay i know you said you don't like plot exposition but but it's the so great good. but the great kendall roy mic drop at the end of season two Yes. So the the last episode, they're all on the yacht. They're trying to figure out whose skull, who's who they're going to fire, essentially to uh, to make people okay with all the malfeasance this company has done. And by the end of it, Logan turns on Kendall, his his son, his technically second born son, who's treated like the first born son, and says like, "You have to do it. You have to do this press conference and tell everyone that this is all your fault. All these terrible things that happened in the cruise division, all your fault." And Kendall's like, okay, and he kisses him on the cheek, and it's all very sad, and he's crying, and da-da-da-da-da. And then he flies off with Greg, and he goes to the press conference. Good morning. I have an announcement to make about wrongdoing at Waystar Royco in advance of the upcoming shareholder meeting. I have been asked to explain my own role in the managing of illegality at the firm and associated cover-ups. And it has been suggested I would be a suitable figure to absorb the anger and concern. But the truth is that my father is a malignant presence, a bully and a liar, and he was fully personally aware of these events for many years and made efforts to hide and cover up. And then they, the camera goes back to Logan Roy's face because he's on the yacht still and he's watching this press conference, which has not gone the way they thought it was going to go. And he's watching his son just totally sell him out, throw him under the bus, and he's got this like smile on his face. And it's like, why is he smiling? And that's and that's the episode. And it's so good. And I'm dying to know what happens next. And I feel like Rebecca maybe knows. I don't know if she has the information or not, but I would like to have it. Well, I I know I know a little bit more than you, and I know a little bit more than I wrote in the piece. Um, but I I you know not not tons more. Uh, but I. You know, I'm enough of an admirer of it that I didn't want to spoil it. So don't don't um, spoil it. But I w- I will say that the there was a very interesting allegiance shift by Greg, basically getting himself out from under Whamscans and like getting on that helicopter with Kendall and handing over the secret papers that he had rescued from the fire on the you know, when they, when, when, when Tom was trying to burn them all and saying like, if you want to incinerate your dad, use these. And it's like that, that, that Greg becomes like a key part of the machinations in a way that no one, I didn't anticipate. Well, I think if you track, I mean, it's a good point, but I think if you track back, there's an awful lot that Greg knows, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, at the yeah. end of season one, he knows about Kendall's buying the drugs and going off in the car. You know, I mean, he knows stuff, um, and he and he obviously knows about the cruiser stuff because he had to do the cleanup. 
um, and then managed to retrieve those pieces of paper by stuffing them down his pants, right? Is that what he did? <laughs> yeah, um, pretty much. Yeah, so it's really... Uh, uh, so he, yeah, you, you, I mean... You know, you one could watch it again, watching just Greg to see what does Greg know. Um, he's also so much taller than everyone else that he can just see everything <laughs> that everybody <laughs> can't see. Well, Greg, Greg actually is the one who in- introduced Kendall to the guy he Kendall accidentally kills in the in the car mm. accident. Mm-hmm. Greg had also been talking to him at the wedding that night, also. So just a little. Thing. Does Greg know? Because you can't just leave that, that alone. Does that Greg know that Kendall killed him? I don't think. No, I don't think he knows that. No, but Greg is the one that told Kendall. He was the first to inform him of the death of that guy. Intense. Mm. I mean, like that whole wedding scene was that. That was the finale of season one, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which was like, yeah, we the, this this show. I will say, we'll we'll we'll. we'll end here because this is the right place to end it but this show is amazing at endings the the <laughs> ending of season one was amazing the ending of season two was amazing and rebecca you were just talking about like you know are the writers out of the writer's room like are they are they writing season four right now is that happening well i'm not 100 percent sure but in I imagine they either are or they are about to because that was the sort of I started following Jesse in the fall of 2019 um like so two years ago thinking that this would be I would you know follow what was going on in the writer's room and then I would go to New York and do the reporting in the early 2020 like April you know March April 2020 and then the show would come out in the fall and da 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 it would be like a year project and it ended up being a two-year project because the show did not start filming in uh march in in march 2020 in new york so either they're they're congregating now or they are due to i think they probably haven't quite started yet but i don't i don't know 100 percent. but it'll be any any moment now so they'll be going but, and there, but there will be there will be a season four uh i i mean I, I, I yes, I assume there is a season four. I mean, but you know, I you know what I I assume that in the way that I I think there's you know there's going to be like the sun's going to rise tomorrow. You know, I mean, <laughs> I live in London; it may not, you know, but um, but uh, yeah, no, I I I don't think there's. I mean, what they could cancel it? Come on. Do you do you? Well, I mean, so this is the risk, right? Like, does this become like a rich person soap opera? Is there a risk that it, it it starts becoming something other than the the sort of? I mean, obviously, it can't be as fresh and new. Come you know, season four or season five, as it was in season one, right? Because like we're used to right. it at this point, right? Right. I mean, I don't know how many seasons Jesse has in mind, but does Jesse know? Yeah, I th- I'm sure Jesse knows. I'm I'm sure he knows, and um, I'm, and I'm sure I tried to get him to tell me and I if he did I I managed to forget it but but I don't think he did <laughs> but I have the feeling in my mind like we're sort of like we're kind of at the top of the I think we're on the like we're tipping over now into the next I, I I'm sure he doesn't want it to go on forever you know um and I'm sure he doesn't want it I, but I am but I I'm also I trust his kind of uh artistic sense of shape to to have to have an idea that he's got you know he knows where he's going in the end and like a 
Victorian novelist is writing in installments as he as he gets to the point that he expects to get to. But I could be just projecting, you know, and thinking that that's how it's going to work. And in fact, he's like scrambling from day to day trying to make it up. Um, Rebecca, will, will you come back for season four to do a little post? <laughs> I'd love to. This. I'd love to. Yeah. Um, Excellent. I I can't wait to listen to your uh, your talk about it. Well, I mean, it's such a it, it, it's so fun, and we just can't get enough. If everything goes according to plan, then we will be here next Monday with a full-on recap of episode one with everyone's favorite Londoner, the one and only Janine Gibson. No, oh, great. Janine is going to crush it. We love Janine so much. And um, and we'll take it from there. It's going to be awesome. We look forward to Slate Money Succession kicking off in earnest with episode one. Same time, same channel right here on Slate Money. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver I kind of like the high five but if you want to hone in on those winning moves check out Chumba Casino at ChumbaCasino.com choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes there are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses so don't wait start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com no purchase necessary BGW void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus